I have to say that I am actually loving the new format for the Parsha podcast. It's dad, deep and deeper. We're, we're doing more segments. It's more sprightly. It's a faster pace. It's quicker. Plus, I like that I can leave some stuff unexplained, unexplored. I could say, well, listen, you know, it's more esoteric. I could just raise up my hands and claim ignorance. In this case, ignorance is an excuse. I hope you are enjoying this year's Parsha Podcast theme as much as I am. And of course, I want to dedicate our studies today in the merit of the hundreds of our brethren who are being held hostage. I was in our shul this week, or yesterday really, and I had a list of the Hebrew names of all the people to pray for. It's an endless list. And it's so, of course, sad and tragic. It's just unimaginable to think what they are going through. And of course, we're going to think about them and try to bear a little bit of their pain and pray for their safety and pray for their return, please God, to their families, to their communities, back home and back to safety. Today, we're going to do three different segments on Parshas Noach. We're going to go a little deep, a little deeper, try to see, you know, beneath the surface, in the substrate of the Parsha, not just to read the text, but also the subtext. And I'll tell you, I have some really wonderful ideas in store. So let's begin. I'm sitting in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. I hope you are well wherever you are. And of course, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. At the end of our parsha, we have a very odd narrative, the narrative of the Tower of Babel. We read chapter 11 of the book of Genesis, how the whole earth was one language and they were all united. And it came to pass that they migrated from the east and they found a valley in the land of Shinar and they settled there and they decided to build a structure, a city, a tower with its top in the heavens, and they wanted to make a name for themselves. And they started building, and the Almighty descended to look at the city and the tower, and he said, Behold, they are one people with one language for everyone, and now maybe they'll be successful in what they do. Come, let us descend and confuse their language. No one will understand each other. And indeed, the Almighty dispersed them all across the world, and they stopped building the city. And that's why it's called Babel, Babylonia, because the word Babel, as it means today, means like to, to, to say something which is gibberish, right? You babble. There, Hashem confused the language of the whole earth, and from there, Hashem scattered them over the face of the whole earth. A very strange narrative, a very strange episode. It's not immediately clear what they wanted. Well, what was the plan? They always say the joke, you know, the, the, the dog is chasing the car, but it doesn't really have a plan what to do once it catches the car. What's the plan here? They're building the city, this tower. They're building it in a valley for some reason. It's not so clear what their plan was, but on the surface, it seems kind of like a cockamamie idea to make some tower to go ascend to heaven, to overpower God, so to speak. It's not immediately clear what they wanted to do. Now, Rashi says that they wanted to build a tower 
to support the heavenly windows so that the sky would not collapse like it did during the flood. Of course, the beginning of the parasha is about the story of Noah and the flood and how the windows of heaven opened and it washed away all of civilization. And they wanted to ascend to heaven and almost affix support beams to those windows of the heaven so that they don't collapse a second time. It seems very bizarre. And especially, of course, because they built it in a valley, you would want to build it, you would imagine, on the highest altitude possible, but they went to the valley. Now, if you read this narrative, there's a particular emphasis on language. They were united. They all spoke one language, and they were united in one purpose. And the byproduct of this episode was the garbling of language. So it's almost, you know, there's a certain symmetry here that they started off as being united in language and they're, they're punished by having their language scrambled and really all of them dispersed all across the world. So just to get started, what's maybe a deeper message behind this story? This is courtesy of Rabbi Nagel, who was part of the first cohort of rabbis that joined Torch way back in 1998. He said something very interesting. He said that the flood, the flood is the handiwork of God. It's not some sort of natural phenomenon that can be prevented with, you know, building support systems and structures and columns to prevent the heavenly windows from opening again. This was God. God tells Noah, build an ark because I'm going to swamp the land. In effect, the flood was communication from God. God showed his displeasure with humanity. And Rashi tells us that when the flood began, it started dripping, just a little bit of water. Maybe people will listen to Noah. Maybe we'll, people will repent. And there's still a chance for them to be saved. When they refused, then the flood, of course, destroyed them. But if you think about it, we have the beginning of the parasha, we have the flood. And that's God displaying, demonstrating, exhibiting, manifesting his displeasure with humanity. And they're trying to prevent flood 2.0. In effect, they wanted to insulate themselves against God's communication. They wanted to say, Almighty, you have a way of talking to us. With a flood, we want to remove that. We want to not hear what you have to say, so to speak. And therefore, it's a fitting punishment that they wanted to garble, so to speak, God's communication. And a fitting punishment for them was that their communication was garbled. It was torpedoed. But in general, the whole subject, it's, it's, uh, it's a very strange episode. They're building a tower in a valley to try to reach the heavens. And this is a sort of rebellion against God. Rashi tells us that this was an active rebellion against the Almighty. So perhaps this is part of their rebellion. We're not even going to use the mountain that God created. We don't want anything 
that God, so to speak, gave us, we're going to build this tower without relying on God's help. But what precisely they sought to do is a bit of a mystery. It was some sort of an attack, so to speak, against God's dominion, against God's power and oversight. They were trying to shake themselves free, so to speak, of God's control. But how exactly they sought to do it and what exactly the the plan was, if they were successful, that's more mysterious. So Rashi tells us, of course, that they, they sought to prevent the second flood. The Kabbalists talk about how they believed that this building, this city, would somehow transpose them to the heavenly spheres. And by kind of leaving the lower spheres, they would leave the subjugation, so to speak, of the lower spheres, and they would kind of go to, go to heaven, and they would not have God rule over them. It's, it's a very, obviously, a strange concept for us to absorb. But listen to this. The verse tells us, 11.6, God said, Behold, they are one nation with one language for all. And this is what's causing the problem. And if we don't stop them, they will be successful in what they are seeking. Whatever it is they're trying to get, however they had planned on doing it, and there's a lot of discussion on that question, the verse reveals to us that their power, what initiated this effort, was the fact that they had one nation and one language. And if they weren't stopped they would be successful. What I want to pull out of this story is the power of unity. If people are unified and they're cooperating and they're working together and they're talking and they are one nation and they understand each other and they're dedicated to a single cause, we have a section in the Torah that tells us that nothing will stop them. And even if their mission is to ascend to heaven and somehow divest themselves of God's control, that, of course, it smacks of idolatry, right? That's an affront to God. It's a rebellion against God. If they are united, if they are as one nation with one language, they will be successful. No matter how cockamamie, how crazy, how outlandish their plans are, they would have pulled it off. And Rashi, in a few places, is highlighting, as the verse does, that they were fighting God, but they were doing it together. They were united. I think just reading this verse, without understanding really the secrets, but reading between the lines, we discover that any undertaking, any initiative that's done with a nation, a single, solitary, united nation, with one language, one purpose, that effort will succeed. Unity, that is the secret to invincibility. Nothing, nothing 
absolutely nothing will impede a united effort. If you look at what happened in this story, God says they're united, they're one nation, one language, and nothing will stop them. How does God actually stop them? He doesn't stop their efforts. He stops the unity. He disables the unity. He disables the single language, everyone working together, cooperating together. He garbles their language. He scatters them. They're no longer one nation, one people, one united front, one language. And as a result, they are vulnerable. They are no longer invincible. And that's how he stops them. So again, we're not really understanding what exactly they wanted to do. But we do see, we were noting here, that their efforts were going to be successful because they were united. And the only way that they were stopped is because God removed their capacity for unity by garbling their language and scattering them across the land. We see from this the power of unity. And this is unity even for a very evil goal. What exactly it was, again, we don't know. But it was in an effort to rebel against God and his oversight and dominion. I think we can deduce from this that unity, if it's so powerful for an evil end, all the more so, how powerful will unity be when working towards a positive goal? It's an unstoppable force for bad here. It will become, it should become, an unstoppable force for good Here they're trying to override the heavens for bad and it would have been successful because of their unity. That teaches us that it is possible to override the heavens for good as well, certainly for good, if there is unity. And I'll tell you that this actually happened. We have an example of this. When did this happen? What did they want to do? They wanted to ascend to heaven and to override the plan of heaven. There's an example of this actually being pulled off. It's not in the book of Genesis, but it is in the book of Exodus. Moshe ascends to heaven. And Moshe spends 40 days and 40 nights in heaven. And the Talmud tells us that when he's there, the angels are very surprised to see him. And they ask God, well, what's he doing here? What's this earthling doing here? What is this flesh and blood doing amongst us? And God says, well, I'm giving him the Torah. You're giving Moshe the Torah? That's a crazy idea. Humanity, flesh and blood, they're mortal, they're fallible, they're sinful. They're not deserving of your holy Torah. Moshe does a very similar thing to what the people 
of the Tower of Babel sought to do. Moshe was able to ascend to heaven. And when he got there, he found an entire network of angels who are trying to deny his plan. He wants to get the Torah, and they say no. And what does Moshe do? He's able to extract the Torah against the wishes of the angels. He's able to, as a representative of the nation, ascend to heaven and overpower, override the angels. He does exactly what the people of the Tower of Babel wanted to do. They wanted to ascend to heaven and to override the heavenly plan. And they failed only because the unity was taken away. Moshe pulled it off. He succeeded where they failed. How did he do it? How did Moshe pull off what the people of the Tower of Babel were unable to do? We find the answer. Exodus chapter 19 verse 2. When they arrived opposite the mountain, the verse says, Vayichan sham Yisrael neged hahar. Israel encamped opposite the mountain. And the word Vayichan means and he encamped. But it is singular, not plural. It should have said Vayachanu. Israel, i.e. collectively, the plural, the masses of Israel, encamped opposite the mountain. Why does it say Vayichan as opposed to Vayachanu? That's Rashi's question. And Rashi's answer is that the nation was so united, like one man, with one heart, with one purpose, that they might as well have been one person. And therefore the Torah can correctly use a singular term, Vayichan, Vayichanu. There is a way to ascend to heaven. There is a way to override the heavenly plans. And we have two efforts in the Torah that were, at least initially, successful in doing it. The Tower of Babel people, they were united, that one nation, one language, and they would have done it if not for God intervening. They would have ascended to heaven. They would have overrided, overrode, overrode. They would have overrode the will of heaven. That's how powerful it is. And Moshe, he pulled it off. God did not stop him. They were united as one, like one man with one heart. And that's how he pulled it off. This should teach us the power of unity. And I was thinking about the war. We talked about last week how Jews wage war. The first war of our nation against Amalek, it was a two-front battle. Joshua was down below waging the physical battle, and Moshe is up on top of the mountain with his hands raised up to heaven, and he is praying, and he's waging the spiritual war. And Throughout history, this is how we did war. The Talmud tells us, I didn't mention this last week, I remembered this over the course of this week. The Talmud tells us that David, David had a great warrior named Yoav. And whenever they did war, David went to go study Torah. He engaged, so to speak, on the Moses level, on the Moshe level, top of the mountain, the spiritual dimensions of the war. 
And Yoav, Joab, went to the physical war. He played the Joshua role. And the Talmud tells us that if not for David, Joab, Yoav would not have been successful. And if not for Yoav, David would not have been successful. It's a tag team. They're working in unison together. And I'm thinking, we're here, I'm here in the United States, but many of us are very far from the battlefronts. And we have to realize the imperative to be united in heart, in purpose, like one one person, one man, one heart, one objective, one nation, one language. It's important for us to make sure that we are part of this. We're united because a united effort will succeed. You know, there's a very controversial debate in Israel over the last 75 years, and that's the status of yeshiva students and going to the army. So they are not obligated to go to, go to the army. If you are a full-time yeshiva student, you have a deferral, which you can renew in perpetuity to stay in yeshiva. And it's a very heated debate, you know, because you have right now, you have a lot of very religious, even former yeshiva students that are also soldiers, but you have almost Everyone who's not from a yeshiva background, and they're all at war. Fathers, co-workers, husbands, they're all, they're all preparing to enter Gaza. And what are the yeshiva students doing? Well, they're in yeshiva. And the yeshiva students have always argued that they are contributing towards the war effort. Like we said, Moshe and Joshua, every Jewish war happens on two fronts. Yoav and David, they're both necessary. Yoav cannot do what he needs to do without the merit of David. And of course, David cannot study Torah if he doesn't have the warriors of Yoav in battle. But the yeshiva students would argue that they're actually doing more to protect the state. And there's a good argument, you know, Joshua versus Moshe. Which one of them is greater? Which one of them is doing a more important job? It's Moshe. David and his general, Yoav, which one is more important? It's, of course, David. I think it's a very legitimate theory, which is consistent with the Torah. The battlefront happens on two fronts, the spiritual and physical. And both of them are necessary. But you have to have the same united front. You have to realize if you're a yeshiva student, if you have the great privilege of studying Torah, you have to realize you are in battle. This is war. So there's no cigarette breaks or coffee breaks or chit-chat. It's a terrifying thing. Women throughout the country, children throughout the country, No husbands, no fathers, no workers. Everyone's on the front line. And we have to be united. We can't just continue doing what we're doing, you know, putting in our hours. This is war. This is war. And that's, I think, this is why I wanted to start with this this idea. It's imperative that we are united in this front because we see how powerful it is. When you are united, nothing stops you, even if it means ascending to heaven, even if it means overriding the heavenly plan. We don't know what the heavenly plan is. 
We don't know. We know that our nation was really dealt a heavy, heavy blow in the awful, terrible, brutal attacks a few weeks ago. We're at war. And we have to be united. The Joshua elements, the Moshe elements, David, Yoab, the yeshiva students in the trenches, the soldiers, of course, on the front lines. We have to all be united. And when we are united, we are invincible. Let's talk about the second segment that we have planned over here. And that's Noah versus Abraham. Noah always gets the shorter end of the stick. He's compared to Moshe. He's compared to Abraham. But if you think about it, Noah was building the ark for 120 years. And he does not succeed in getting a single adherent to his cause. By contrast, Abraham, he gets tens of thousands of people who are willing to leave their homes and just follow him. They're Abraham's groupies. They'll follow him wherever he goes. And Noah's righteous. He is the only person, as we always like to mention, he's the only person in the Torah who is called a tzaddik. But somehow he is criticized that he's not as great as Abraham. And what I want to investigate, and we spoke about this very briefly last week, I want to investigate where Noah went wrong. We talked about Noah inventing the plow. What an interesting factoid about Noah. Noah, Noah, as he's known in Hebrew, he's called Noah, which means comfort. Why? The verse tells us, chapter 5, verse 29, at the end of last week's parsha, that he provided comfort from our suffering and torment from the earth that was cursed by God. As a result of Adam's sin, there was a curse that was given to the earth. And that is that it's going to have weeds and thistles. It's not going to easily produce the food that we need to eat. And Noah is called Noah. It's called comfort because he provided comfort because he invented the plow. That we saw last week. What an interesting little fun fact about Noah. He's an inventor. There's a patent with his name on it. He invented the plow. The plow, it helps alleviate some of the curse, some of the sting of the curse of Adam. It moves the soil. It gets rid of some of the problems in the soil, some of the weeds in the soil. And Noah invented that. And in fact, that is central to his character. He's called Noah because of that. That's what we said last week. In our parsha, we read chapter 6, verse 13. An easy verse to remember. 6.13. God tells Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. The land is full of chamas, it's full of thievery. And behold, I will destroy them. Es ha'aretz. Es ha'aretz. Which means either with the land or from the land. But it's unusual terminology. What does it mean that God is destroying them with the land or from the land? So Rashi offers two interpretations. Either from the land, well, they're on the land now, but they're going to be gone from the land. Alternatively, Rashi offers a second interpretation. God will destroy them with the land. God is also destroying the land. 
explains Rashi. Because the three tvachim, the three hands breath, hands breaths, like 10 inches, which is the depth that a plow reaches, like the, the topsoil is turned over by a plow at a depth of three tvachim, of three hands breaths. That also was destroyed. So I'm, in, I'm going to destroy the people with the earth, meaning which earth? Not all the earth, just the depth of the earth, of the soil that a plow turns over. Rashi is teaching us, based upon a midrash, that the flood destroyed the earth at a depth that the plow plows. Is this a coincidence? Noah, we're told, 529, invented the plow. And then 613, Rashi tells us that the flood removed the topsoil to the depth that the plow plows. This seems to tell me that the flood nullified any progress that happened due to the invention of Noah. It undid all the positive elements that Noah achieved with his invention. Isn't this interesting? Noah's an inventor. He's the Eli Whitney of his time. He invented the plow. And that's why he's called Noah. Because he alleviated the symptoms of Adam's sin. The sin told us that, well, weeds and and thorns and thistles will sprout. And the plow, that improves things. It turns over the soil and it prepares it for planting. And somehow this is targeted by the flood, the flood of Noah. What exactly is the deeper message being conveyed here? Noah and the plow. So I want to kind of address it on two different levels, two interconnected points. What did Abraham invent? What patents were issued to him? Did he invent the weed whacker or the scythe or the sickle? How did Abraham use his creativity? How did Abraham benefit the masses? I think there's a very, very deep point here. Adam sinned. That changed everything. He got a Yitzhahara, evil inclination operating within him. And he was cursed. With the sweat of your brow, you'll eat bread. And there will be thorns and thistles and weeds will sprout. He's condemned to work the field in order to have food. And everyone wants to help. Noah wants to help. Abraham wants to help. And they each do it in a very different way. Noah, he invents the plow. Noah is not thinking, how do I solve the problem? How do I fix the underlying cause? How do I reverse the sin of Adam? Noah's tolerating the sin of Adam. He's tolerating the status quo. 
Let's learn to live with it. We have thorns. We have weeds. We have all these problems. Thanks to Adam's sin. Well, how can we improve? Let's try to clear out the weeds. Noah is working within the framework of Adam's curse. Abraham, he's doing something else entirely. He's not inventing a weed whacker. He's trying to find a way to eliminate the problem in a very fundamental way, to reverse the sin of Adam and thereby reverse the curse that came out of that sin. The Talmud tells us that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were the only ones who thoroughly, comprehensively, and totally cleared themselves, cleansed themselves of the Yitzhah That's a way of saying that they fixed within themselves the sin of Adam. Adam's sin, after all, spawned the Yitzhah within a person. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Talmud tells us, I spoke about this extensively in my first book, not the new one that we're working on, not the new one that I wrote like 10,000 words this week on. The old one, upon a ten-stringed harp. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they fixed within themselves the sin of Adam, and thus they cleansed the Yetzirah, which is the byproduct of the sin of Adam, and they perpetuated that mission to their descendants. Two very different ways to deal with the sin of Adam. Noah tried to do something. He invented the plow. How'd that work out for him? With the flood? All the progress that Noah made was done. The flood completely removed any impact of the plow. It cleared away the topsoil at the depth that a plow plows. There's nothing left. He's left with nothing. And Abraham? Abraham changed the world. Noah considered the sin of Adam to be the de facto state of humanity. And let's try to make things as best as they possibly can be, given the realities on the ground. Abraham, he's a dreamer. Why do things have to be like this? Does the sin of Adam have to endure forever? Let's try to fundamentally transform things. And each one got what they sought. Noah improved people's lives. It's more pleasant to have a plow than to not have one in the reality of the sin of Adam. And Abraham launches the operation to transform the world, to fix the problem at its roots. Noah was addressing the symptoms. Abraham was trying to treat the disease to fix it. And that's why Noah invented the plow. And Abraham invented the notion of fixing Adam's sin altogether. And yes, Noah is one of the great personalities of our history. He's the only one, as we mentioned earlier, he's the only one in the Torah who is labeled as a tzaddik, as righteous. But he's also criticized. Unlike Abraham, who reversed the tide of Adam's sin, Noah tried to live with it. He tolerated it. Yes, he tried to alleviate some of the symptoms, but he did not address the underlying malady. 
Abraham, we don't see him trying to improve the fields. He's not trying to say, we have weeds, let's try to improve our life now that we have the weeds. He's trying to change everything. Let's see if we can eliminate those weeds. For Noah, things were improving a little bit. But after the flood, Noah had to completely retool the flood, washed away any progress that he had made. There's another wrinkle to this point. There's a very big difference between trying to make someone's life easier or trying to make it better, albeit more difficult. Noah, the word Noah means comfort. Noah was trying to make everyone's life easier. There's no one regarding whom Abraham made their life easier. He made their lives better. He gave them the ideas and the arguments and the values and the priorities and the tenets that they would need to live a higher life, to live a loftier life. And yes, that's a more difficult life. And Noah maybe was a bit of a people pleaser. He wants to not to push people too hard. Let's try to make their life a little bit easier, more comfort. Perhaps part of the lesson here is that if you want to give someone comfort, it's very hard to give them also change. Those who coddle cannot have the impact of Abraham. Another very interesting subplot to this story. So fascinating. Rashi in two places. 529, 613 tells us that there's some sort of connection between Noah and plows. And maybe this is some of the deeper messages that are being conveyed here. Segment number three. This one is just a beauty. An amazing insight with a few moving parts. I left it at the end. I think it's probably the deepest one that we're going to cover just because it does demand a bit of knowledge of Hebrew and of the gematria system, which is the assigning of a number to every letter and thus to every word in the Torah or in Hebrew, really. I'm going to try to do it in a way that everyone can understand it. It's helpful if you could write this down because there's a few moving parts here that all intersect in a beautiful way. Noah's told that God is going to destroy all of humanity, all the flesh. Why? Because the land is full of Hamas, not Hamas, the terrorist organization, a similar bad thing. Hamas is a form of theft. It's a form of theft, robbery. Now, how do you spell the word Hamas in in Hebrew, in the Torah? It's a ches, and then a mem, and then a samach, Hamas. Question number one. There is a more standard word for theft, for thievery, for robbery, and that's gezel, or geneva. The word Hamas, it's a very unusual word. So why does the Torah use this word, Hamas, Ches, Mem, Samach? Why does it use this word? 
to describe the sin that contributed towards the generation of the flood to be condemned to be destroyed. Question number two. God tells Noah the precise dimensions of the ark. Its length is 300. Its width is 50. Its height is 30. And all the way at the top, it reaches one, one cubit point at the top where the two walls, the, the two sides of the roof meet. So the dimensions of the ark are 300 by 50 by 30 by one. And it's very precise. Why, why these specific dimensions? The Ramban, after all, says that it's a miracle to fit all the animals in anyhow. What is the secret of these precise dimensions? Listen to this. This calculation comes courtesy of the Gona Vilna. He cites the Talmud. The Talmud tells us that the venom of a snake stands between their teeth. You see a snake, it's got these two, these two sharp teeth. And between it, that's where it injects the venom. Eres nachash between its teeth. The, the poison, the venom of a snake comes from between its teeth. Now, what's the Hebrew word for a snake? It's nachash. Nachash. A nun, a ches, and a shin. And the venom is between the teeth. How do you say teeth or tooth in Hebrew? It's a shane, a shin, and a nun. So, if you just write this out, it's easier to, to see it. The word nachash, it's a nun, and then a ches, and a shin. So, the two letters on the outside, the first and the last, are a nun and a shin. Those are the same two letters for the word tooth, which is shin nun. Thus, when the Talmud says that the poison of a snake comes from between its teeth, says the Gronavilna, that means that the poison is found not in the letter Nun, not in the letter Shin, which spells out the word tooth, Shane, those two letters. Rather, it's in the Ches, which is in between the two. Okay, so we have three letters for the word snake, Nachash, Nun, Ches, Shin. And the word tooth is shame, which is the first and the last letters. And those do not contribute towards the conveyance of venom. The venom only comes from the letter ches. The other two, in fact, are moderating forces. They limit, so to speak, the danger of the venom. Okay, hold that thought. This is maybe more than you bargained for. There is an angel that we call the Samach Mem. We're not allowed to say the full name of this angel, but it's a destroying angel. Think angel of death, think Satan. It's one of those angels. Some people like to call it Uncle Sam, Samach Mem, Sam. But the full name that we don't pronounce is Samach Mem Aleph Lamed. Aleph Lamed means God. 
So this is samachmem. It's like uh, poison. The word samachmem means sam, poison. And then there's aleph lamed, which is God. It's like someone. It's like using the, the the power of God, so to speak, to give poison. But similarly, the, the word aleph lamed, meaning God, that's not poison. It's only the samachmem that give the poison. So we have again the word nachash, three letters, and the poison's only from the ches. And we have the second word, samach mem alaf lamid, and the poison is only from the samach mem. And in fact, the other two, the alaf lamid, they counteract the samach mem. They counteract the poison. So we have two words with seven letters. Nachash, nun, ches, shin, that's the snake, and the poison's only in the ches. And then we have samach mem alaf lamid, and the poison's only in the samach mem. Three of these letters thus are poison and venom, and four really are antidotes. The world was worthy of destruction. When? When that happened? When they became corrupted. And the land was full of chamas. Chamas means robbery and theft. But the word chamas is spelled ches, mem, samach. Ches, that's the middle letter of the word nachash of snake. And Mem Samach are the Samach Mem of that angel, Uncle Sam. It's the poison of that angel. Thus, it's way worse than a Nachash. It's way worse than the Samach Mem Aleph Lamed. Hamas, that is a description of only venom, only poison. You have the Ches from the middle of Nachash, between the tooth. And the Samach Mem from Uncle Sam, without the moderating force of the Aleph Lamed, it's just the venom, just the destructive elements of that angel. And Noah has to counteract that. What's the foil for the malady of the generation of the flood? How do you survive it? You survive it in the ark. What are the dimensions of the ark? 300 by 50 by 30 by 1. The corresponding letters of that, every, of course, letter has a number. The letter Shin, that's 300. The letter Nun, that is 50. The letter Lamid, that is 30. And the letter Aleph, that's one. We had seven letters. Three of them were poison. That's Hamas. The other four are all antidotes, and they are 350. 30 and 1. Shin, Nun, Lamed, Aleph. The Ark. The dimensions are precise. And those numbers equal the four letters that sweeten the snake, so to speak. That sweeten, that limit, that curb the full effect of the venom and of the destroying angel of the Samach Mem. Now, if that didn't make any sense, I apologize. But again, it's very helpful to write it all out because you'll see that we have seven letters and Hamas, the state of the world that led to this destruction, those are all the three of the poison of the word Ham, uh, of the word Nachash and the word Samachmem Aleph Lamed. 
And the other letters, the ones that limit, that curb, that attenuate and mitigate the full force of said poison, those correspond to the numbers which are precisely the dimensions of the Ark. 300 is the Shin. 50 is the Nun. 30 is the Lamed. And 1 is Aleph. Mind-blowing depth to just reading parts of the Torah that seem to be just, you know, seem to be just arbitrary. Nothing arbitrary. There's nothing. There's depth everywhere you turn. The word Hamas, it's precisely selected. Not Gezel. Hamas. And the dimensions, they're all precise. It's all, it's all precise. And the Gona Vilna adds that the main purpose of the Ark as Rashi cites in verse 14, it's to awaken the interest of the passerby. So that way everyone should see him and say, well, what are you doing? And he would respond, well, God is disappointed with all the Hamas and he's going to destroy the world and the only way to survive is with this. You have the Ches, but add the Nun and the Shin. Marbleize some of the poison with a little bit of the antidote and you'll be fine. Aleph Lamed. 30 and 1. Add that as well, and you will survive. Alas, it did not work. But this, maybe, this definitely qualifies as a deeper. It might be more than uh, you expected. And again, I, I would recommend that you write it. If it doesn't make any sense, just write it all out, and you'll see it's just something so beautiful. So deep, so profound. Courtesy of the Gona Vilna, I thank you for your time. I thank you for your attention. I'm sitting now in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, and I'm thinking, of course, about our brethren in the land of Israel, our boys, our young men and women that are in, in danger, both those in Gaza, outside of Gaza, and we are praying for all of them. I'm thinking about you as well, and I appreciate and very much appreciate that you're listening. Send me an email, rabbiwalbajim.com. Have an amazing Shabbos, an incredible rest of your week, a sensational, uplifting week upcoming and Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, we will talk again with the help of the Almighty, with the unending help of the Almighty next week.